desire is that you have them getting a better understanding of what salvation actually means. On tonight, I'm going to get very technical, very theological, but I promise you I'm going to take the time that I can to try to break it down as much as possible so that you understand salvation in its fullest extent. I think sometimes if we, um, if we understood what was wrapped up in salvation, we would stop trying to be blessed. Let me say that again. The Lord said that to me earlier today. He said, Philip, if, if the people would stop, if they would understand what salvation really meant, then they would realize I don't have to try to be blessed. I'm already blessed. There's a benefit package that comes along with salvation. But my people perish because of what? A lack of what? Lack of knowledge. And because sometimes we don't, in the modern day church, we focus so much on being blessed and, you know, overcoming and God going to open, open the door and make a way. And then in three days you coming out. Okay. But in salvation, you're already out. But if you don't know that, if you don't understand that, then you will be trying to reach for something God has already blessed you with, okay? It's like, um, um, it's like, it's like you got a billion dollars, a billion dollar check um, that's in a safe deposit somewhere, and it's got your name on it, but you still go into the check cashing store. It is beneath who you are. It is beneath what God has done for you. And when you understand salvation, there's some things that you'll just come to the conclusion, it's just beneath who I am, okay? Not, not to say I'm high-minded, not to say I'm better than anybody else. It is, to, it is a getting a good revelation of what God has done. So I want to uh, kind of go over this uh, really quick. And um, um, so let's, let's recap just for a minute, and let's go back to our last couple of notes, the last two sessions. So we said salvation. This is the foundation of our church. This is what we believe, and this is what I said at the very first time we started this conversation. We believe that salvation is a gift of God and is received by man through personal faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sin. That's our first foundational principle that we believe. Number two, we believe that man is justified by what? By grace through faith apart from works, okay? That's the second thing we believe. The third thing we believe is that all true believers once saved are kept secure in Christ for how long? Forever, all right? So that is what we believe as a church and as a ministry, all right? That is, and we all have biblical background. We've been going through this and showing you this in the word of God, not my opinion. I want to kind of move forward um, from there and, and kind of lay the groundwork. Now, on last week, I think we talked about, first week we talked about how awful we are and our need for salvation. Wasn't a fun week, but it was necessary, all right? Last week, what did we talk about? We talked about, um, hold on, come on, give it to me. What we're saved from, and what are we saved from? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, okay, and death, right. Okay, and then we went on to talk about the process of salvation. Salvation is three parts. It is what? We have been saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. All right? If you didn't get that, I know I can't go back through that right now because I got to move forward. List, go to um, all our, you know, our website, uh, our, our Apple Play, what is it? Something. Google Play and... Apple Podcasts and all that other stuff. Uh, look us up, Freedom Church of Jacksonville. All that teaching is on there. It is on there now, right? Yes, all that teaching is on there. Um, we were having some 
uh, technical difficulties, but all that teaching is on there now. And so if you want to get uh, more of what I just said, uh, that teaching is on there. But on tonight, I want to move forward because I need for us to understand what did Jesus actually do on that cross. We all believe, we confess that we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that we are saved by faith through grace because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But what is the significance behind that? All right. And so I kind of want to kind of break this down. So Jesus Christ, the, the God man, was clothed, was God clothed in human flesh um, so that he could live a sinless life, shed his blood for the sins of all men and rise from the dead and go back to heaven to be our intercessor. OK, that's who Jesus Christ is in a nutshell. But I want to kind of lay this foundation, number one, by talking about, write this down, why did Jesus Christ have to die? Why did Jesus Christ have to die? Why couldn't your great-grandmammy die? Why couldn't you die? Why couldn't uh, the pastor die, the bishop, the pope? Why couldn't they die? Why did Jesus Christ have to be the one, right? Okay, here's number one, write this down. In order to pay the wages of sin that we have earned. In order to pay the wages of sin that we have earned. Why did Jesus Christ have to die? Number one, to or, in order to pay the wages of sin that we have earned. We have earned some sin. We have earned the wages that come along with sin. Okay? Um, if you have your Bible, let's go into the Bible on tonight. Ezekiel 18, verse number 4. Ezekiel 18, verse number 4. Ezekiel 18, verse number 4. Now, you know, in this whole discipleship process, I'm going to be dealing with um, um, the Word of God. So keep your Bibles out. We're going to go through the Word to see this and put this together, all right? Ezekiel 18, verse number 4. Jesus had to die in order to pay the wages of sin that we have earned. Ezekiel 18, verse number 4. If you have it, say amen. Ezekiel 18, verse number 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. I, I made you go all the way to this text just for this next little part. The soul who sins shall die. Y'all see that? The soul whose sins shall die. Go over to the New Testament, 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. The soul whose sins shall die. 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. Peter 2, verse number 24. You got it? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. All right? Go over to Galatians, the third chapter, verse number 10 through 14. Galatians, the third chapter, verse number 10 through 14. Ezekiel 18, verse number 4 says, The soul who sins shall die. 1 Peter 2, 24. Uh, he, he 
he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Galatians 10, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Y'all ready? For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by what? By faith. Okay? But the law, verse number 12, is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right? Let me break all that down for you, okay? See, the reality is what the Word of God teaches us is that our sin uh, will get paid for one way or another. Why? What do we say? The wages of sin is, so we know that there is a payment that needs to be made for the sins that we make. Why? Because we are unholy, God is holy, and they cannot mix with each other. And because they cannot mix with each other, and we'll talk about it, God has to be satisfied. He has to be appeased. We're going to get into that in just a minute. The, the sin that we commit has to be paid for one, by one way or another. Here's the reality. I can either rely upon Christ's sacrifice on the cross as a necessary payment for my sin, or I can strive to pay my sin debt with my best efforts. But it is impossible for man to redeem his own soul and earn his way into heaven. It is impossible. On our best days, we are still nothing but filthy rags. I don't care how many tongues you speak in. I don't care how many verses you can quote. I don't care how many times you can pray during a day. It does not matter. Our best effort is still nothing but filthy rags. So Christ redeemed us. What does that mean? It, it means that he brought us with a price. His blood and his life, watch this, was payment for our sins. What paid for our sins? His blood and his life. What paid for our sins? His blood and his life. What paid for our sins? His blood and his life. Not you singing in the choir. Not you ushering on the board. Not me preaching to you. None of that pays for our sins. Do we see that? Okay, watch this. What did, the, what did he redeem us from? He redeemed us from, catch this, the curse of the law. Everybody say the curse of the law. What did he redeem us from? He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law. Why is the law cursed? Why, why, does, why, does, why does he lay it out like this, saying that the, the law is cursed? Why is it cursed? You know why it's cursed? It's because you got to keep the whole thing in order to be justified. 
And the Bible says in James 2 and 10 that under this system of the law, if one tries to keep the whole law but offends even one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. That sounds like a curse to me, don't it? Honey, that's worse than any hoodoo voodoo. That's worse than anybody putting a hex on you. That means if I break one law, I am doomed forever. I need you to see that. It, it means I could get up in the morning and I'm trying to go to work and if I go uh, uh, 46 miles in a 45 mile an hour, it's over for me. Ooh, look at your neighbor say, it's been over for you a long time. It's been over for you a long time, long time. Oh God, it's been over for you. Joe led foot self. We got, to, we got to grab the children real quick when you coming in the parking lot because we don't he says that the law is cursed because of the fact that if you try to follow it, you would end up doomed because eventually out of the 617 laws, you're going to break one of them. Okay, watch this. But when Jesus paid the wages of our sin through his death, it means that Jesus rescued us from the consequences of our transgressions. He saved us from the punishment which our sins deserved. Oh, my sins deserved it. Okay, my, my sins deserved the punishment. Come on, let's just be real. I, 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 since I've been saved, I said since I've been saved. I said since I've been saved. I know some of y'all think that, you know, since you came to Christ, you're just so wonderful and so great. But that, I need some honest people in here that say since I've been saved, I've been a mess. And I need God to save me and help me with the transgressions because my transgressions need to have be punished. But God says because of the what I've done on the cross, I, there is, I have paid the price for the punishment of your sins. And as a result, catch this, the text says that now we receive the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham, the head, not the tail, above, not beneath, a lender, not a borrower. That is not the blessings of Abraham. <laughs> it is a result of the blessings of Abraham, but that is not what the blessings of Abraham really are. Are y'all with me? It means, what is the blessings of Abraham? It means I am justified by faith. It means my sins have been pardoned, I have peace with God, and I have eternal glory waiting on me. That is what the blessings of Abraham are. It means I am justified by faith. I'm going to get into justification in just a minute. It means my sins have been pardoned. I'm going to talk about being pardoned in a minute. It means I have peace with God. He ain't mad at me no more. And I have eternal glory waiting on me. When I close my eyes on this side, I'm going to open my eyes on another side. Okay, that's what the blessing of Abraham is. Okay, now as a byproduct, you the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, a lender and a borrower. Okay, that's how he got to that song. All right, all right. So number one, the reason why Jesus had to die was because of what? To pay the wages of sin that we have earned. Here's number two, in order for the new covenant to take effect. Jesus had to die in order for the new covenant to take effect. In order for the new covenant to take effect. What is the new covenant? It is the promise that God makes with humanity that he will forgive sins and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned toward him. Uh, it, 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 the, the old covenant that God had established with his people 
people, watch this, required strict obedience to the Mosaic law. Strict obedience to the Mosaic law. The law required that Israel perform daily sacrifices in order for us, in order for them to atone, make at one for their sins. Sin separates you from God. And so they would kill an animal and present it before God because the blood was a sacrifice to say, I'm sorry. And so we had to, they had to atone for their sins in order for them to be at one with God all over again. The only problem was they had to get up the next day and do it all over again. Because the moment that you atone for sin, you're going to do something. You're going to think something. You're going to say something. You're going to go somewhere you ain't supposed to be. You're going to say something you ain't supposed to say. You're going to do something you ain't supposed to do. Come here. You're going to think something you ain't supposed to think. Okay? But Moses, through whom God established the old covenant, watch this. Moses even, the one that he established his covenant with, Moses even anticipated that a new covenant was coming. Moses looked at them people and said, mm-mm, this ain't going to work. They ain't going to keep this. This, just, this ain't going to happen. They whining, they complaining, they grumbling, they sinning, they doing all kind of crazy stuff. This ain't going to work. So Moses anticipated a new covenant. Moses predicted that Israel would, would fail in keeping the old covenant. Um, go to Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. And uh, go back to uh, 29, Deuteronomy 29. So if you look at Deuteronomy 29, I just want to show you this. Deuteronomy 29, verse number 22 through 28, this is where Moses is telling them, y'all ain't going to get it. It just ain't going to happen. Your children who follow you in later generations and, and foreigners who come from distant land will see, all, see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases which, uh, with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be burning waste of salt and sulfur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation, no growing, no destruction. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, um, that place and that place, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? Why is God mad? Because they keep messing up. So Moses is saying, listen, y'all ain't going to get this thing together. But Moses and, uh, uh, pre, uh, uh, prophesies that there will be a time of restoration. Go over to the 30th chapter. Verse number 1 through 5 of the 30th chapter, Moses is saying there's going to be a time of restoration. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and with all of your soul according to everything I have commanded you, then the Lord your God will restore your uh, fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back verse number five here it is he will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers let me stop right there what he's saying is under the new covenant there's some benefits that come with this new covenant 
covenant package. Okay? Under this old covenant, you had to work, 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 and you still never got it right. But under this new covenant, God is going to bring you into a prosperous land. Now watch this. Look at verse number six. Verse number six. Look what he says. The Lord your God uh, will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. I want to read this from the New Living Translation. The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and soul and so you may live. Watch this. The new covenant involves a total change of heart so that God's people are naturally pleasing to him. Now watch this. The old covenant was after changing behavior. The new covenant is after changing your heart. Why? Because you can change your behavior, but if your heart never changes, you'll go back to the same old behavior all over again. But when God changes your heart, it's something that happens on the inside of you. That's why God is after us having relationship and not just religion. Religion can be behavior modification, but relationship means if I ain't in church, I'm still going to lift him up. If I'm not in church, I'm still not going to cuss and lie. If I'm not in church, I'm still going to do what God tells me to do because it's not about behavior modification. It's something that happened within my heart. Touch your neighbor and say, it's in my heart. It's in my heart. Uh, Jeremiah also predicted this new covenant. Go over to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse number 31. Why am I showing you this? Because there's too many people talking about, you know, this old, the, the law versus grace, old covenant versus new covenant. And, and I want you to see that even when God gave the old covenant, there were, pe there were men, men of God in the word of God who prophesied that a new covenant was coming. God had already shown them, this ain't going to work. This is just to keep you. This is to keep you until something bigger and greater comes along. And the something bigger and greater that comes along is Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, 31. Y'all got it? Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Drop down to verse number 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Look what he says with this new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Okay. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law of Moses and established a new covenant between God and his people. The old covenant was written in stone, but the new covenant is written in our hearts. Okay. In other words, it is no longer about a list of rules. It is now about a relationship that you have with him. Watch this. Because if I gave you a list of rules, it don't mean you actually love me. But if it's a relationship and you know it's something that break, breaks my heart, you'll stop doing it because you don't want to break God's heart any longer. Do you see the difference between the old and the new? All right. Uh, go back to Ezekiel uh, 36. Ezekiel 36. I want to show you another place where the new covenant is also mentioned. Ezekiel 36, verse number 26 and 27. 
God say, don't love me. Don't, don't, don't just serve me because a bunch of rules. Serve me because your heart is, you know, uh, uh, who is it? Atlantic Star used to sing a song, if your heart ain't in it, why don't you tell me so? Y'all ain't old school like I am. Y'all don't know what I just said. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, verse number 26 through 27. If you have a say amen. And I will give you a what? A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Watch this. Ezekiel lists several aspects of the new covenant here. Here are the several aspects. He says a new heart, a new spirit. Watch this. He even talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about true holiness. All in this text. I will put my spirit within you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Watch this. Ezekiel is saying you get a new heart, a new spirit, indwelling the Holy Spirit, and true holiness. Watch this. Write this down. What he's saying here is, is that it is a willing and a progressive obedience. It is a willing and progressive obedience. It means I'm willing to obey and I will progressively obey. Where you get that from, Pastor? Um, if you see right there in the text, I will put my spirit with you and cause you to walk. Walk means you got to put one foot in front of the other. If you are walking from one destination to another, it takes some time. You don't just snap your finger and teleport yourself. And that's the problem with the saints. The saints want teleporting deliverance. You want to come down to this altar. Somebody lay hands, slap some grease on your forehead. And you walk away thinking that it's done. And God is saying, I don't work like that in the new covenant. The new covenant is a walk. It's a step-by-step. Step. It's a day-by-day. Day. It's a progressive. It is a moment-by-moment. Moment. It, I can't just snap my finger and all the stuff that I used to do is all of a sudden gone. No, I, I have to work some things out of you. There it is. I got to make sure I take you through some processes to make sure that whatever you used to do, you don't want to do that no more. Because by the time you don't walk from point A to point B, see, the problem is you want to go to point A to point Z. But God said, no, you got to go through A, B, C, D, up. You messed up D. Go back to B. B, C, D, E, F, G, A. Uh-uh, take you all the way back. Is there anybody here that knows that my obedience to God has been a walk, that he had to take me through every day of my life? And sometimes I wanted to obey, and sometimes I didn't want to obey, and sometimes I said yes, and sometimes I said mm -mm, no. Uh, is there anybody here that say sometimes that you have to learn that it's a progressive walk? That's why you can't judge other people's walks because you don't understand what it took for them to get to the place that they are right now. I need you to give your neighbor a high five and say, don't you judge judge me. You don't know how much hell I had to go through to get to this place. You don't know how much I had to get to this place in order for me to say yes to God and to obey his will. It is a willing and a progressive walk. The new covenant brings you to a place that your wants, your wishes, your aspirations, your hopes come in harmony with what the Lord directs. I didn't just end up like this. I had to take some time. I had to pray through some seasons. God help me. I had to fast through some stuff. 
I had to cut some people off. I had to leave some things alone. I had to, here we go, I had to tell myself, no, there it is. I had to walk through some seasons in my life. I didn't just get to this place, but thanks be unto God that he carried me on eagle's wings through everything that I had to go through in order for me to get here. Do me a favor, take about five seconds and give God glory that he was walking with you every single day of your life to get you to the place that you're at right now. And the problem was that the Mosaic law could provide none of these things. Just a bunch of rules. That is why we are no longer under the law, but now we are under what? Grace. We are no longer under law. New the old covenant is the law. The new covenant is grace. The old covenant has served its purpose, but it has been replaced by a better covenant. A better covenant. Go to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hurry up, Philip. Okay, I will. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse number 15 through 22. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse number 15 through 22. Y'all all right? Okay. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse number 15 through 22. I'm loving this season we're in right now. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse number 15 through 22. Uh, you got it? That is why he is the one who medi mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the, the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Watch this. Now, he goes into talking about, um, I, I, w I wasn't going to read this, but I need you to see this. Verse number 16. Now he starts talking about what happens with a will. Okay? He says, now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it, it, it is dead. Um, the will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made, is, made it is still, still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of animals. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of the God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or maybe you'll say remission of sins. All right. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. Sin and guilt has to be atoned for in our life. Okay? There must be, here's a word that you hear now in politics, but I want you, want you to see this in another way. There must be a reparation for the wrong or injury we have committed. God said he wants his reparation. Because you sinned on me. You did me wrong. So now I need payment for that. Okay? Watch this. Jesus becomes our mediator between God and us to atone us for our sins. What does that mean? That means he's in between. It is God on one side. 
in his holiness. It is us on the other side in our wretchedness. And here is Jesus in between, bridging the gap between the two. And I can't get to God unless I come through Jesus. This is why it is important that you confess Jesus as Savior. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This is why Jesus is so important. Jesus becomes the mediator. And death becomes the necessary path to make our new covenant valid. When he shed his blood. See, God's covenant have always been sanctioned and ratified with blood. Because there's life in the blood. There's life in the blood. But before Jesus, the blood of animals could only cleanse ceremonial defilement. It was a ritual. It was something you did. Come on. Ceremonial. Come in freedom. So you come to church as a ceremony. You lift your hands when they tell you to as a ceremony. You, 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 you check off you've been in church on Wednesday night because it's a ceremony. But God is saying, I need something deeper than that. I need something greater than that. So I need some blood to be applied. I need the blood of the Messiah to cleanse us. Watch this. Not from ceremonial uh, defilement, but I need the blood to cleanse me from the defilement of my real sin. Come on. Because when the blood gets applied to your life, come on. Is there anybody here that say, when the blood got applied to me, there's some stuff that changed me that I can't even understand? to this day. There's some stuff I left alone. There's some stuff I'm not comfortable in. I thank God for the blood because if it wasn't for the blood, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood. That's why I'm grateful to God that he shed that blood on Calvary's cross for me because without the blood, I'll still be lost. Without the blood, I'll still be crazy. Without the blood, I'll still be messed up. But I thank God for the blood, the efficacious blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that was Apply it to the mercy seat. You ahead of yourself, Phillips. Please slow down, slow down, slow down. Calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down. I get very excited when I start talking about this stuff. I really do. All right. So why did Jesus have to die? Number one is what? Yeah, go all the way back to your sins. <laughs> I mean, all the way back to your notes. <laughs> why did Why did Jesus have to die? Number one. Number two. Number three is, in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. In order that we might receive the adoption of sons. In order that we might receive the adoption of sons. Go to Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse number four through seven. Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse number four through seven. four verse number four through seven in order that we might receive the adoption of sons in order that we might receive the adoption of sons Galatians 4 verse number four through seven if you have a say amen I need to wait on anybody Galatians 4, verse number 4 through 7. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, say I'm a child of God. 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, verse number seven, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now, I want you to understand this text. Paul uses a metaphor to describe uh, us as being adopted into God's family. Under Roman law, adopted children had the same legal status and inheritance rights as a biological child. So under Roman law, if you were adopted into a family, you had the same legal rights as, uh, as biological, biological children. Now, here's what's going to mess you up, and I need you to hear this. Jesus alone is the son of God from birth. Let me say that again. Jesus alone is the son of God from birth. What happened to Mary? The spirit overshadowed her. Okay? So that came from God. God impregnated her. Ain't that a mess? Watch this. Jesus alone is a son of God from birth. But Jesus consents to share his kinship and inheritance with us. My sin made me, we read this a couple of, uh, uh, I think even the last week or the week before last, my sin made me a child of the devil. Y'all remember when we read that scripture? My sin, our sin made us a child of the devil. Jesus said, you, who is your father? The devil. Remember that? But my salvation makes me a son of God. God help me. And Jesus shares with us in his inheritance. Go over to Romans 8 chapter verse number 17. I'm now adopted into the family. Why is that so significant? Because notice what that text says. He says, watch this, you are not slaves but sons. You are not slaves but sons. Okay? There are different benefits that slaves receive versus what a son receives. And God is trying to show us that when we receive salvation, we are no longer a slave, watch this, not to him, but to sin. But now we come, become adopted children of God. Everybody say, I'm a child of God. Romans 8, verse number 17. Look what it says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. See, this heirship is not merely a future hope, but a present reality. It is not something that's just going to happen when I get the glory. This heirship uh, that I share, co-share with Jesus Christ, and I'm an heir of God, is a reality right now. You know what that means? What did I say? When you're adopted, that means you have the same legal rights. You ready for this? So whatever Christ had, I also have. Okay, you missed it. I share in an inheritance that didn't belong to me, but God, Jesus, gives it to me. He says, you can share in this. And now I become an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Uh, let me put it like this. That means I have a right to joy. Still ain't with me. I have a right to peace. I have a right to prosperity. I have a right to forgiveness. 
See, this is why I said at the beginning that sometimes when we don't understand salvation, you waiting on to be blessed when you need to realize when you are saved, you already blessed. You have a right to joy. So tell depression, I know you're trying to take me out. I know you're trying to take over, but I have a right. I have a legal standing with what God has for me. And in that inheritance is my joy, is my peace, is my prosperity, is my forgiveness, is my grace. I have a right to some stuff. That's why, can I tell you some people of God freedom as a pastor I'm telling my church stop walking around with your head hung down as if the world is so against you the world's supposed to be against you why because you sharing in something they can't share in you got a right a legal standing status that there's some things that God is releasing to you and is there anybody in here that even if they crucify me and they I, I, I got a right to resurrection God help me that's why you keep getting up over and over again that's why the thing didn't destroy destroy you because you have a right that every time you get knocked down you got a right to get back up again grab the hand of your neighbor shake it real good and say get up from where you are stop walking around with your head hung down stop walking around like you the victim when you need you when you need to know you are a victorious Christian you have some rights you have a legal standing is there anybody in here that has made up in your mind I'm gonna access my rights Stop with the pity party. Stop with the pity party. Stop with this woe is me. Oh, I know I'm coming against it right now. Stop with your head hung down all the time. Look what I'm going through. Look what's happening to me. It's supposed to happen to you. You think the devil liked the fact that you got an inheritance and he don't? You think the devil likes the fact that he, his, his, his eternity is doomed and your eternity is glorious? You think the enemy likes that? He going to fight you with everything he got. But is there anyone in here that say some trust in horses and others trust in chariots? But I will trust in the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter what it looked like on the outside. I have a right to some stuff. Better use your rights. Better use your rights. You got some benefits. Right? So number one is what? Go back to it. Why did Jesus die? Number one. Number two. Number three. Okay, I need to cut some of this off because I need to give you the rest of it. Here's number four and number five, okay? Um, in order that he might deliver us from this present world. Let me add a word to that. A present world system. In order that he might deliver us from this present world system. Don't turn to it. Just write it down. Uh, Galatians 1, verse 3 through 5. In order that he might deliver us from this present world system. And that's in Galatians 1, verse 3 through 5. Okay. Number five. In order that he might bring us back to God. Jesus died in order that he might bring us back to God. And that is um, 1 Peter 3, 18. Now, these scriptures I'm giving you is not the only scripture where this stuff says this, all right? Um, there are many scriptures, but I just wanted to give you one, and you can research it, okay? Uh, in order to bring us back to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. you're saved in here, let me go into this next section. What was the death of Jesus Christ for us? What did it, what, what, what happened? What, 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 why 
am I saved? What happened on that cross? All right? I want to give you some principles, um, and I need you to write down. Here's number one. What happened on that cross? What was the death of Jesus Christ for us? Number one, it was redemption. Redemption. Everybody say redemption. Redemption actually has three sub-meanings, and I need to give you all three for you to understand what redemption is, all right? Um, so I'm going to do something that I normally never do, but I'm going to give you the Greek words because I need you to understand um, that sometimes when you can have one word in English, but in Greek it can have very different meanings, okay? So here's the first one. I'm going to spell it for you. Y'all ready? Okay. A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. Okay. That is the first Greek word for redemption. And that meaning is to buy or pay a price for something. To buy or pay a price for something. It is to pay a price which our sin demanded so that we could be redeemed. Redemption. To buy or pay a price for something. Our sin demanded payment for it, okay? Go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 20. Corinthians 6, verse number 20. Let's keep Maisha in our, in, her, in our prayer. She lost her brother on um, uh, Sunday, Saturday, and um, their family's going through a horrible time right now. We just want to keep them lifted in prayer. She's here on tonight, and um, we're praying for you and praying with you. Um, we'll have more details about that coming soon. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 20. The Bible says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, here's what messed me up about this in prayer, this one little text. You were bought at a price. How much was I worth? If, if you paid for me, how much was I worth? I literally had to put this thing down and walk away right there. Because it dawned on me that he paid the ultimate price. Look how bad God wanted you. Jesus, help me. That he was willing to pay the ultimate price just to have you. God, help me. You know, there's some people that won't spend a dime on you. There's some people that think you are worthless, that there's nothing to you. But Jesus said, you are so valuable to me that I'm willing to give it all just to have you. See, watch this. This is how the Lord said it to me today. This thing messed me up. You might want to uh, put this out, tweet it, whatever you want to do with it. He sacrificed what he loved most so he could buy what he loved best. That thing wrecked me. 
he sacrificed what he loved most, his only begotten son, to buy what he loved best, which was you and I. He sacrificed everything. Why does that not move the saints anymore? Because we still waiting on the house and the car. We still don't wait on the next job. We still wait on our come up. We still wait on our bag. But honey, let me tell you something. Ain't no bag that is more valuable than the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross for you and me, for me, for me, for jacked up me. And what I love about it was he knew who I was and he still paid the price. God help me. He knew how crazy I was. He knew how jacked up I was. He knew how, how fickle I would be. He knew how unfaithful I would be and he still paid the price just to have me. If that don't ever move you, check your salvation because there's some people that need to realize he loved me so much that he gave everything just to have me, and I'm grateful to him. So when I lift my hands and say to God be the glory for the things he has done, honey, it ain't for a house. It ain't for a car. It ain't for a job. It ain't for money. It's because he sacrificed everything just to have me. He knew who I was going to be. He knew that out of the same mouth, I would say, I love you one minute and hate you the next. And he still paid the price. See, that does something for you. That does something for your joy. That, that'll put a smile on your face. That somebody loved you that much. Huh? All right, so that's the first meaning. Here's the second meaning. Here's the Greek word, E-X-A-G. O-R-A-Z-O. E-X-A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. Okay? What does this word mean? It means to purchase out of the market. To purchase out of the market. Um, Galatians, E-X-A-G-O-R-A-Z-O, to purchase out of the market. Go to Galatians, the third chapter, verse number 13. Did we read that one already? I think we did. I think we read that one already. Go to, Gal uh, uh, go to Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse number five. Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse number five. Actually, you know, I do need it. I need it. Go to Galatians, third chapter. Just go back one chapter. Verse number 13. I need it. I don't care if we read it. I need it. Let's show this to you. <laughs> Sorry. Galatians, the third chapter, verse number 13. The Bible says, Christ redeemed us. That's that redeem right there. From the curse of the law. Okay? By becoming a curse for us. Now, I want you to see that. Christ redeemed us. He purchased us out of the market from the curse of the law. Okay? By becoming a curse for us. Go to Galatians, fourth chapter, verse number five. Galatians 4, verse number 5, to redeem those, purchased out of the market, those under the law, that we might receive adoption 
to sonship. Y'all see that? Okay. Here's what I need you to understand. Before salvation, we were slaves to sin. It dominated our total being. We are in bondage to sin. See, when you don't have salvation, then you can use the excuse, I can't help myself. Okay? But what he's saying right here is when you talk about this redemption, Christ's death not only paid a price for our sin, but it removed us from the marketplace of sin. In other words, when you see in African-American history, when the slaves were purchased, they were, they were on a stage usually, and they would people be bidding on them, right? What he's saying here is take that same imagery. You were the one that was up on that stage, but it was sin that was standing there bidding on you and purchased you and then made you work out all the sin that he wanted you to work out. Do you see that? But he says this redemption means, watch this, that I purchased you out of the marketplace. Sin used to be your master, but now Jesus becomes your master. Do you see that? Okay? That's what he's saying right there. Redemption gives us full assurance that we will never return to the bondage and the penalty of sin ever again. We will never be put up for sale as a slave to sin again. So that excuse, I can't help myself, no longer applies to us. It's not that we can't help ourselves, it's that we want it. Do you see that? It's not that I can't help myself, it means I won't fight with myself long enough to tell myself no. Because now I'm no longer a slave to sin any, long, any longer. Okay? All right? Here's the last meaning of redemption. Um, it is spelled L-U-T-R-O-O. L-U-T as in Tom, R-O-O. And this redemption means to loose and set free. This word is to be released and set free in its fullest sense. Why? Because this word, redemption, means that there is a receipt of the ransom that has been paid. What Jesus is saying is, I got receipts on you. I, I, I got a receipt of when I paid the price for you. Okay? So when I show my receipt, it means you can go free. God help me. Jesus, that messed me up right there. See, the doctrine of redemption means that because of the shedding blood of Jesus Christ, believers have been purchased, removed from bondage, and liberated all at the same time. Everybody say, I'm free. That means nothing can bind you, nothing can hold you, nothing can have you because you have been purchased at a price and God has a receipt on you. And because of the ransom that has been paid, you are now free. It means we have been freed from the past. We have been freed from the bondage to the old, uh, our old master of the devil. And we are free from our old patterns of our sinful behavior. The price has been paid uh, for us, the purchase of our freedom forever from the slave market, and we will never again be what we once were. This freedom is my inheritance in Christ. Now that word redemption, all those work at the same time in your salvation. It's not that you pick one and don't pick the other. 
God is saying all that is a part of your redemption. Here's number two. Here was number two. Propitiation. Let me spell that for you. I told you we're in the weeds tonight. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Everybody say propitiation. You just learned something new. Here we go. Propitiation. What happened on that cross? Number one, redemption. Number two, propitiation. He paid the price, bought you back. Watch this. Propitiation literally means mercy seat or covering. That is the literal translation for propitiation. It literally means mercy seat or covering. Now, where do we get that from? Let me break this down. Let me give you some um, history with this. In the Old Testament, there was something called the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all remember that? Okay, I've taught on that before. The Ark of the Covenant, it was the, the physical symbol uh, of, of, of the presence of God. Okay, gold wooden box, nobody could touch it, two cherubims at the top of it, all right? Um, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant was solid gold, and two cherubims faced each other and looked down on it, okay? Most times when you see it, they, their wings are coming in like this. Um, and they're like touching each other. And if you notice the faces of the cherubims, they should be looking down at the top of the Ark of the Covenant. All right. The Shekinah glory of God rested over the Ark. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go from the outer court to the inner court into the Holies of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was behind a veil. Okay. A very thick veil that they went behind. And what would they do? They would sprinkle blood. The sacrifice, they would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the lid for the sins of the people. Are y'all with me? Okay. When God saw the blood, he could extend mercy instead of judgment. Because to God, a sacrifice has been offered on behalf of the sins of the people. So when I should judge you, I extend mercy to you. His justice was satisfied because when the mercy seat was in place, God did not see the table of the law that was in the inner court. He saw the sprinkled blood that was on the mercy seat. Isn't that a mess? Watch this. So to propitiate means, watch this, write this down. It means to appease or satisfy God. I took you that long way just to give you that definition. It means to appease or satisfy God question y'all answer this why does God need to be appeased y'all scared why does God need to be appeased no and I'll, I'll tell you why it's a good that's head in the right direction but not quite there yet If I need to be appeased, what does that mean? Because I'm what? Because somebody just said it. Because I'm what? Because I'm angry. 
got angry? Because of the sin. So God has to be appeased. He's angry. Because mankind is uh, angry. Uh, God is angry with mankind because of their sins. Go to Romans, the first chapter, verse number 18. Romans, the first chapter, verse number 18. Romans, the first chapter, verse number 18. First chapter, verse number 18. Y'all got it? Here's why he's angry. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is angry. Because we're godless. Because we're wicked by nature. Okay? Go over to Ephesians 5, verse number 6. We're godless. We're wicked. Why is he angry? We're godless. We're wicked. What else? Ephesians 5, verse number 6. Ephesians 5, verse number 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. He's angry because we're godless. What was the other one? We're wicked and we're also disobedient. So the shed blood of Jesus Christ propitiated God. He was satisfied. Go to Romans, the third chapter, verse number 23 through 26. Romans 3, 23 through 26. Now, you know this first part real good, but I want to continue in this, this, uh, this same scripture. We know that first line real good. Romans 3, 23 through 26. reading from New Living Translation. Uh, for everyone has sinned, we all for, fall short of God's glorious standard. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay, y'all know that one, right? Look at verse number 24. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. We can go home on that. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back 
and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and included them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just and makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Propitiation means God turned aside. Literally, you know, if you, if you look at the imagery of that word, it means that you are standing before God, you are sinful, but when he sees the blood, God goes like this. He turns aside his wrath, and, and, it, and because he turns aside his wrath, it enables him to receive into, his, receive into his family those who place their faith in the ones who are satisfied with him. The, 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 the barrier which sin has built between God and man is now broken down. Why? Because God has been satisfied. So to say that God is propitiated is to say that God is satisfied. See, what does that mean? What it means is we don't, have, we don't have to spend time trying to outdo the bad things we've done with good. We don't have to spend all our time and all our effort trying to do all the good to outweigh the bad. Because the reality is I could never do enough good to outweigh all my bad. Because of our good works uh, uh, or trying to give money in church or helping the poor, or will, it will never be enough to appease our God. We can do all that because we are grateful for what God has done in our lives. But God is completely satisfied with the atonement of Jesus Christ. I don't have to try to impress God in order to be, be forgiven. Jesus satisfied everything on that cross, and I am forgiven. It has been satisfied. I don't have to work on, on trying to be saved. It has been satisfied. I don't have to work on God not being angry at me. It, it has been satisfied. And when judgment and wrath should hit my house, and when judgment and wrath should hit my life, God says, I know you did wrong, but at blood, I just got to turn away. I just got to turn away. All right? So number one, it was what? Redemption. Number two, here's number three, reconciliation reconciliation r-e-c-o-n-c-i-l-i-a-t-i-o-n reconciliation so um i've been redeemed he bought me now his wrath has been appeased propitiation reconciliation means bringing together those who were opposed to each other bringing together those who were opposed to each other. To reconcile means to change from enmity to friendship. I have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and I'm no longer an enemy of God, but now I am a friend of God. Reconciliation by the death of Christ means that man's state of alienation from God is changed so that now he is able to be saved. Because, watch this, how can I save you and we are still enemies? So reconciliation is necessary in order for us not to be enemies no more. Now we are friends of one another. Go to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse number 19 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. Everybody say, I'm a friend of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. Everybody say, God ain't mad at me no more. 
2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. Look at your neighbor and say, he ain't trying to strike you down. All right. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 19 through 21. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice something, that it is, it is God who reconciles us. It, it, it is God who reconciles us, restored us in our relationship with God by bringing about a change in our life. It's not something we could have done for ourselves. It required God's initiative because our unholiness is incapable, uh, incompatible with God's holiness. Paul says that God accomplishes reconciliation through Jesus Christ, through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So how are we reconciled? You're saying I'm no longer um, enemies with God. I'm friends with God. I, I'm no longer distant. I'm no longer alienated. Well, how is that possible? It happens through three, three ways. Number one, forgiveness is given. Number two, we are justified by faith. And number three, grace is extended. If I'm your enemy, or let me put it like this. If you're my enemy, I have to forgive you in order for us not to be enemies anymore. Y'all see that? And if we're going to remain in, if we're going to, have a relationship, I have to justify you. Okay? We're going to talk about justification in just a minute. But justification means as if you've never done it. Ain't that some mess? That's the problem with our relationships now. Because we fall out, and we, every time we see them, all we do is remember what they did to us. But in order to be reconciled, I have to forgive you, I have to justify you as if you've never done it, and then I have to extend grace to you. You know what grace means? If you do it again, it will not disconnect our relationship. That's true reconciliation. That's heavy. Now, you're thinking about that with a person. God said, I did that with you. Because since salvation, you done broke my heart. And I still love you. I didn't disconnect myself with you. You sinned, came in church, and you still felt my presence. Y'all don't want no real talk right there. Come on, let's have some real talk. Uh-huh. You, you sinned, and you still got up in some, and the glory fell. It was evidence to show you that I had been reconciled, that you had been reconciled back to me. I didn't cut you off. God, I thank you for that. Ooh. Is there anybody in here grateful that God never cut you off? when he had every opportunity to cut you off. He never cut you off. Even when we was crazy. I ain't praying today. You all at work. Trying to listen to everything that ain't godly. 
trying to get them off your mind. And God sat right next, right, sat down right next to you. He's still here. Romans 5, verse number 10 and 11. Romans 5, verse number 10 through 11. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, let me, let me, let me, let me stop right there. Let me stop right there. Let me stop right there. This thing messed me up just now. I, I just, just now. Email straight from heaven. I'm going to open it. Here we go. If I reconciled you while you were my enemy, how much more of a life you going to have when you connect yourself even closer to me? See, we are getting stuck at the moment of salvation, not realizing there's a greater life even after being saved. That's what he's saying right there. He's saying, if, if, if while you were my enemy and I still reconciled you while you were an enemy through my son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? You know what that means? That means that after you've been reconciled to Jesus Christ, you need to get ready to have a good life. Don't mean everything is perfect. Don't mean every day is one, wonderful. You're going to have ups and downs. But even in the downs, you're still going to have a good life. I need you to look at your neighbor and say, it's all good. It's all good. If I'm up, if I'm down, it's still all good. If I got money, I ain't got no money. It's still all good. You know why? Because when I don't have no money, I have such a life with him that he'll send somebody to come bless me. That's a good life, honey. Verse number 11. That wasn't in the script. Number 11. Verse number 11. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation means that God is not our enemy. God isn't waiting to be hostile towards us again. He's our friend. He wants us to trust that friendship. He wants us to trust that friendship. He wants us to trust that friendship. I know he's your savior, but you need to see him as your friend, and he wants you to trust that friendship. The problem with us is because we've been done dirty by so many people who called us friends that we now look at God as if he's the same way. God said, I ain't like none of them. I'm faithful. I'm loyal. I'll never leave you. I'm a friend that stays closer than a brother. I'll always be there. So, so we have to trust that friendship. We have to trust that friendship. All right? Number one, go back all the way to number one. What is number one? It was what? Redemption. Number two? Number three? Here's number four. It was a substitution. What Jesus did on that cross, it was a substitution. Substitution means in the place of or in the stead of. Christ was our substitute who took our place, who bore our sins, who paid the penalty that we deserve. We should have been on that cross. We should have been spat upon. We should have been whipped. We should have been beat. Nails should have went in our hands. They should have went in our feet. But he 
Um, this is where the theological term of substitutionary atonement comes in, that he becomes our substitute, that it was us that deserved it, but he took on the penalty of our sins. It means that something happened to Christ, and because it happened to Christ, it need not happen to us. So um, I think we call it esoteric. There are the people who, um, who uh, will beat themselves, whip themselves, thinking that, you know, that's penitence towards the Lord for what they have done. Jesus says, stop cutting yourself. Stop beating yourself. You do not have to harm yourself because Jesus already paid the price. Okay. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, I am healed. I don't, I don't have to go through that because he took it all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? Jesus Christ died in our place. And when he was crucified on the cross, uh, we deserve to be the ones uh, placed on that cross to die because we are the ones who live sinful lives. But Christ took the punishment on himself in our place and substituted himself for us and took on what we right, rightly deserve. Somebody say, I deserved it. Go to 1 Peter 3, 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. First Peter 3:18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In the original, it means for the benefit of or in the place of. Jesus was the substitute that died instead of us for our benefit. I did the wrong, but he took my place. I was guilty, but he took on a penalty for me. He was our representative as the hung, hung, as he hung on the cross. It shows us that God loved his creature so much that he was willing to be my substitute. Mm. I was separated from God because of my sins, and God is the judge that decreed penalty because of his holy character. And I am under the sentence of death, and I can't do anything for myself to escape the execution of this penalty. So God came himself to take the penalty for the men and women he loved. Jesus Christ came voluntarily to die in our place for our sins and for our benefit. He took the full penalty, both physical and spiritual death. Should have been us on that cross. So why was God, why was Jesus the perfect substitute? Why was he the perfect substitute? Why would he be the one to die and not us? Why, why would he be the one and not your, your, your saved grandmama? How, why would he be the one? Watch this. Number one, he was a man. He could die for a man because, watch this, he had the same value. 
animals have the same value as humans? I, I know sometimes in this country we question that, but do animals have the same value because you shoot a dog and you go to jail for years, you shoot a black man, and anyway, let me get out of that. Um, do animals have the same value as man? No. So the Old Testament, they were presenting animals before God. Okay? Why was he the perfect substitute? Because he was a man. Number two, because he was sinless. He was sinless. What does that mean? That means he could die for sinners. Okay? Um, here's number three. He was a man. He was sinless. But number three, he is an infinite God. 